Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your hot takes, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. About 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. Thank you for everybody who participated as uh, this season is right around the corner. I mean, have we started to exhaust some of the off-season talk, maybe a little bit. I mean, I'm ready to get this show back on the road. And speaking of which, I am uh, I'm back in L.A. I am getting ready to broadcast United Cup in Brisbane on T2. Perfect way to start the year. Perfect way to spend the new year. So uh, I am on cloud nine. I can't wait. Um, and I'm ready, to, I'm ready to start watching tennis again even though uh, the offseason functionally feels unbelievably short. All right, let's get into it. This first one was, I believe, the top-liked comment from Ron Robbie. Hi, Gil. If you were a member of Rafa's team, who are four top 40 players you'd like him to avoid in his first three to four matches? And who are four players you'd like to see his, as his opponents during his first couple matches? Wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy New Tennis Season, and I echo those sentiments. All right. So Nadal set to return in Brisbane, which is next week. And I'm looking at the entry list right now. The question is, who should you be as a Nadal fan or as Rafa? Uh, who should you be wanting to play? Who should you not be wanting to play? I mean, I, I just think you're looking for some players who are going to allow you to play the ball and give you a little bit of rhythm. I think the the worst case scenario for Rafa is he comes out there against somebody with really, really big weapons. Maybe they're a little bit erratic with them, but regardless, you know, somebody who's just not really gonna let Nadal feel the tennis ball and get the the repetitions from the baseline uh that that he wants to be getting. So I'm looking at again the Brisbane entry list right now. Uh, and the guys who maybe I wouldn't want, I, I don't think Rafa should want to play are uh, Ben Shelton with his big serve and his big game. Hugo Umber, I think to some extent, is uh, a pretty hyper-offensive player. I don't think Nadal will want to be seeing him. Acorda has challenged Nadal in the past with his phenomenal two-handed backhand that holds up so, so well against Nadal's uh, cross-court forehand obviously him being a lefty. And then uh, I know you asked for four names, but I'll give you two more. I see Opelka here. I don't think you want to play Opelka. And I see Karatsev here. And I don't think you want to play Karatsev. Uh, but those are those are the ones that stand out. Obviously with Nadal being a wild card, ranked 
So last time I checked, I saw him at 666, but this says 664, so I, I don't know what it is. But uh, regardless, obviously, like, he could play the one seed in the first round. That's Holger Runa. Uh, Dimitrov's the two seed. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of guys in here that I think would be pretty favorable opening opponents. I see Baez and Echeverry, uh, Murray, Arnaldi, Nishioka, Yana Kampfman, J.J. Wolf, Altmaier, Fuchovic, Giron. Uh, so there you go. I've named most of the entry list at this point. And uh, I guess I guess uh, that's all there is to that. Okay, this next one is from Tennis Kit Kat. Great username. Uh, didn't get any likes, but I just think there's some interesting points here. So I chose it. Uh, I, I did read a lot of feedback uh, towards the end of last year. I read I read a bunch of comments that were saying, well, maybe because I always pick the most liked comments, uh, some of the players with the bigger fan bases, like a Djokovic, uh, it's just the mailbag sometimes can get repetitively focused on those players. So uh, I understand that, and I'll try to kind of weigh the number of likes with also trying to manage the diversity of topics in the mailbag because you know it is true the most popular players comments about them usually just get more likes all right anyway here we go hi gil i've noticed that some players like chorich and arnaldi have arrived in melbourne earlier this year i think borna said he struggled to adapt to the conditions in the time zone in the past is one of the reasons why i'm interested to see how this will play out with Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Sinner currently not signed up for any lead-in tournaments, do you think that this could hurt their chances, or will arriving a week or so beforehand be enough time for them to practice and to get used to the courts? No, I mean, it's an interesting thing you bring up here, but ultimately, you can't have it both ways, right? Like, we've seen, we saw last year a player like Kasparud Rude uh, has a shortened offseason because he's playing exhibitions, and then he shows up to play United Cup, right, in the first week of the season, and he's like, I'm totally burnt out, and I had no offseason, and this is terrible, so then he had to take February off, didn't play the golden swing, and uh, it just, it got his year started off on on a wrong foot, just to name one example, but as an, as an overarching kind of statement, every tennis player in the world pretty much agrees that the offseason is too short. So the thing is, as much as all of these tennis players say that the offseason is too short, mostly every single one of them is not really helping their cause from a scheduling perspective. Now, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them, and I understand that there are different pressures that partially depend on just how high up you are in the rankings. Are you trying to be seated for majors because you're on the cusp of the top 32 are you in a position where, like, you just can't pass up on prize money, and you, you're not you're not all that comfortable with that? Are you fearful that you might lose second round at the Australian Open, and you're not going to pass up the opportunities to get more matches in January because you want to make sure your trip to Australia is is fruitful and you get at least I don't know five six matches for the month. Uh, I, I understand that all of these things are at play, but when you look at an Alcaraz or a Medvedev or a Sinner who have ambitions to win the Australian Open, and you look at how much tennis they have to play over the course of a year, given the fact that their win percentages are so high and they're going deep week in and week out, generally speaking, I absolutely applaud them for not coming back so soon. 
uh, to play in the first couple weeks of the Australian swing and starting their season at the Australian Open because three weeks is not enough to have, first of all, proper rest recovery and then proper uh, training, which includes a lot, a lot more weight training in the off season so that you can build up your muscles more. Uh, things, you know, heavier lifting that you can't do during the season. And uh, maybe even some technical work that you feel liberated to do on the practice court because you're not worried that you're not you're not worried that it's going to kind of mess you up for your match tomorrow, right? So you can do some some more aggressive tinkering with with technical stuff or uh, tactical stuff that you want to kind of try out. That's what this off season is for, and um, I I love it when players take longer off seasons, especially top players when they're able to. Okay, second part of this comment. Uh, it seems the AO balls are fluffing up quickly again. I heard they were made for hot slash dry conditions. I'm in Melbourne, and it's been fairly wet and humid. Who will this benefit, and who will this hurt? I did see this on social media. I saw very, very fluffy Australian Open Dunlop tennis balls. It's going to be interesting to see like what the, the sentiment in the locker room overall is on these balls because, yeah, they were somewhat unpopular last year. But if they're going to get really, really big and fluffy, it just means they're going to move slower through the air. So it's the players with the extra muscle, the extra power uh, to be able to get the ball through the air a little bit quicker to make up for the fact that the ball is less aerodynamic and maybe even a little bit heavy. Um the players who can make up with for that with their own natural power are going to be the players who are able to overcome it. It's going to be the lower power players who struggle with a ball that's fluffing up a lot. From House of Leaves, hey Gil, what do you think our expectations for Ham Hamad Majedovic should be in 2024? The first four next-gen finals winners either became top players or had a standout victory the next year. Nakashima broke this trend. Does this mean we shouldn't expect anything spectacular from Majedovic? Well, it does feel like the, the next-gen finals, in terms of the strength of field, has lost a little bit of steam since the first couple editions. But uh, I'm really glad you asked this because I wasn't able to cover uh, Majedovic formally on the channel. And uh, I, I did want to, so thank you for asking a mailbag question about the young man from Serbia. I thought his... Performance throughout uh, Jetta was really, really impressive. Especially if you look at the final against Arthur Fees, which he won in five sets. He should have won all five sets. He he dominated Fees. He had set points in every single set, and his nerve management was really bad. He was a nervous wreck in the first set and the fourth set in those tie breaks. He made big mistakes in the tie breaks. And that's why it ultimately went five. But he outplayed Arthur Feast from start to finish in that fast four format. Um, and by the way, after the first set and the fourth set, when he kind of had those meltdowns, both times went to the bathroom, came back, and he was good as new. He was able to put it past him. So mentally, he's a, a highly emotional player. But it was good to see him be able to turn the page on some disappointing, kind of choky tie breaks. His serve-forehand combination in Jetta was dominant. He was racking up the aces. He was generating forehand winners from behind the baseline with relative ease. His serve plus one was a monstrous obstacle for his opponents to get past. 
So my comp, like he kind of reminded me of Berrettini, honestly. So I think the real question when you look at Majedovic's ceiling, how good can he be? Uh, the question is, can he be Berrettini with the backhand? They're similar to Matteo. He's a big, strong guy, carries more weight on him than most tennis players. It's going to help his strength. It's going to help his power. It's going to hurt his mobility. So I don't think he's ever going to be a great mover. Maybe he can prove me wrong in that area. Um, again, this is all this is all early reads. I hadn't watched Majedovic that much, but I did get to watch him a lot in Saudi Arabia. Uh, his two-hander is definitely better than Mateo's. So if you're looking at what's the best case scenario for Majedovic, I think you're looking at Berrettini with a two-hander. Plain and simple. Nicholas Jari also maybe wouldn't be the worst comparison in the world. My question marks right now are, one, his conditioning. On a quick indoor hard court, you're not really going to see that tested as much, but he had a little bit of a cramping issue in his first match. That raised an eyebrow for me. Uh, is he comfortable when things get more physical? Is he comfortable in, you know, hot outdoor conditions, which, you know, a large portion of the tennis calendar is going to, is going to be in, uh, does his consistency drop outdoors? Does his spot serving dip? Uh, does, does he make more errors on his aggressive forehand? Uh, I'm not, I'm not all, I'm not as much concerned about those things compared to the, um, the physicality. Uh, but the other thing I saw, as I kind of mentioned, he was definitely a different player when things got tight. I think the, the word I used is a nervous wreck. So nerve management, physicality, those are kind of my question marks right now. But the weapons are there in spades. The weapons looked phenomenal in Jeddah. So uh, I'm really excited about Hamad Majedovic. I think he can be really, really good. Next one is from the bean seller. What kind of beans? That's my question. Jelly beans? Coffee beans? Please clarify. Okay. Hi, Gil. My first mailbag comment, but I've been enjoying your content for a while. Thank you and welcome to the YouTube community section. All right. I'm a little worried that Medvedev's not winning the same tournament twice thing is starting to become a mental block for him. He mentioned it a couple of times in finalist speeches towards the end of the year, so it's clearly on his mind. Do you think it's affecting his ability to play well in the latter stages of tournaments he's already won, or does the streak continue to be a coincidence? I bring it up partially because he's kind of running out of big tourneys on hard courts. If he wins the AO, maybe Klevedev will come out in full force. A related question, if slash when Medvedev does end up winning a tournament twice, which one do you think it is most likely? I've thought about this. I think it's a good question. Does the I've never won the same tournament twice thing negatively affect Medvedev at tournaments that he's won before? Especially because Daniil is a thinker. Sometimes that probably ventures as far as being an overthinker. And he's obviously hyper aware of this. Very, very aware of it. Um... So it can't be helpful. You never want something like this in the in the back of your head. But I would also say that it's so it's so illogical and coincidental that if the stars are aligning for Daniil and he's playing an opponent 
who he feels like he figured out and he's liking the conditions and he's feeling good physically and he's hitting the ball well. All those sensations are there. All of those good sensations that you want on a tennis court. I don't think it's something that where, you know, the the mental block of having not won a tournament twice is going to override all of those positive things and sabotage his ability to win a final. I don't think it's that significant. On the other hand, if he's in one of these finals and his opponent is doing something that's giving him a ton of trouble or playing really well, or if physically something's bothering him, or if it's really windy and he's annoyed at the conditions, these things that you don't want, that's where I think when you when you have a, a predisposition to something negative in your head that you carried coming into the match, in this case for Medvedev, it would be that he's never won a tournament twice. That's where I think those negative things, those external things can, can, can weaken you, can weaken you mentally, make you less prepared to handle those things. So that's how I think something like this would manifest itself for Medvedev. It's a little bit armchair psychology, but this is the best I can do to kind of this is this is how I think it would affect him. All right. Let us go to the next one. It is from Vitekazov. How dangerous will Naomi Osaka be in 2024? I think really good. I think really good. I think the competition is very stiff. I was going through her results. I was looking at her, her her runs, you know, her her major titles and her main rivals in her kind of I'll call it her era 2018 to 2021. I was looking at that. I do have more respect, a little bit more respect for some of the players who are at the top right now, particularly Sabalenka, Rybakina, Sviantek, than I do some of the players she was contending with when she was winning slams. So maybe it will be harder for Osaka to win now uh, because I think the tour is so healthy and the tour is so strong at this very moment. But in terms of individually what, what she's capable of, I think she'll get back to where she left off. I mean, at the end of the day, she is a ball striker. She is a power player. That is what doesn't really go, right? She's not going to come back and suddenly she doesn't serve big. She doesn't hit her forehand big. Um, and and that's what really, that's what Osaka does. That's what makes her so good. I mean, yeah, she's a fine mover, a pretty good mover, especially for her size. But she's a, a hyper-offensive player with weapons everywhere. Nowhere to hide. Backhand, forehand, serve. They're all big, bad weapons. And uh, I expect that to remain the case. The big question is obviously going to be mentally, is she different? Is she more unflappable? Is she is she happier on the court? Is she more resilient on the court? Because in the kind of the latter stages before she stepped away, so I'm talking end of 2021, start of 2022, obviously, which ended at, at Indian Wells when the fan... Uh, heckled her. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, she went dark super easily. She went dark like that. It only took the slightest thing to just throw her off, and then she she wouldn't have much of a chance, and uh, you know she wouldn't give herself a chance to win the match. So, yeah, I mean, the real question for for Osaka is not about her tennis. It's it's is she a different person and a different player mentally when she comes back? Going to be fascinating, and uh, I really look forward to watching her on this comeback. Next one is from member R.S. Tucker. Thanks for being a member. You can hit that join button, contribute to the channel, support the channel, $2 a month. I appreciate it. Hi, Gil. What do you think are the pros and cons of the Grand Slam tournaments and the 1000s forming a premium league? I can see the benefits for, for the players, at least the top players. I can even see potential benefits for fans and potential fans. Would it completely take away the appeal of top players entering current 250 and 500 level events? I love going to the City Open by me as it's a good mix of, of players and it's very fan friendly. Do you think there is a good chance a proposal is put on the table this coming year? Thanks as always for the great content. All right. So first of all, for those who don't know what Tucker is talking about in this comment, I did cover it in a previous mailbag. I won't repeat what I said there. Um, and this is a, a different question. But this premier tour that this comment alludes to is a proposal that has been reported on. It's been floated. It's been talked about. I don't know how realistic it is. I don't know that there's been any you know, further movement to push it forward. But it's been talked about that the Masters 1000s and the four major championships and I guess the year-end championships, the finals, uh, they are going to merge operations, combine media rights, combine governing bodies, um, essentially, become one, and to create this kind of premier super tour, which would, I guess, you know, make the, the calendar easier to follow, uh, look, I, I think they're going to give a lot of reasons for that. If this happens, it's just because they figure they can get a massive media rights deal for a lot of money. Uh, that, that's that's why it would happen, plain and simple, okay? But you're asking about what happens to the 250s, what happens to the 500s, what to, what to make of the smaller tournaments. I don't know specifically. Nobody does uh, because those details have not been reported on. So I don't know. But I would tell you, mind the trend. Like, look at what's happening here. What has happened since Andrea Gaudenzi has taken over as the, the head of the ATP? He immediately said, I want to stretch out the premium product, which means these events that are closer to the majors, they are our best events where all of our best players play. They are at our biggest venues in our biggest cities. And they demand the most for media rights and sponsorships. Let's stretch those out. If that's our gold, why wouldn't we want more gold, less silver, less bronze, more gold? That's the logic. And there have already been casualties. 250s, 500, small events. There have already been casualties. That is the trend. And it stinks for the locales. It does because that's the best. The best part of these small tournaments are the communities that benefit from them. That's the best part of it. 
But economically, the tours mostly make money from selling the licenses and the media rights. They don't really make, I think they make a portion of it, but I don't, you know, their main income is not, is not ticket sales and, uh, and that kind of thing. So even if the live experience is great at the city open in Washington, DC, and it always has been, uh, perhaps the ATP is not bringing in as much money as they are, uh, as they could be if instead they were stretching out another masters 1000. So look, that's all I'll say. Uh, This is not the most insightful answer. I understand that because we lack information. I'm just telling you to look at the trend. The smaller tournaments are increasingly getting swallowed for the bigger tournaments. That's how the calendar has been reformed in the last few years. Um, yeah, effort to stretch out the premium product. But there will always be smaller events because there needs to be a entry point, right? There needs to be a feeder for the for the main tour. So, you know, smaller events will never go extinct. It's just a matter of who plays them. From user, hi, Gil, two questions. One, what do you expect from Corda in 2024? Two, who has more potential, Corda or Draper? I see a lot of similarities between these two. Young, powerful hitters with huge serves. Unfortunately, both are injury prone. This question is even more interesting to me because I watched your top 10 predictions and you mentioned Draper and didn't mention Corda. A good point, because they are they are very similar in the respect that they are both capable of a ton, and they have been unable to really fulfill their potential because of the injuries. Corda has arguably accomplished at this stage more than Draper, so uh, I'm glad that you're bringing them up together. What do I expect from Corda in 2024? Uh, a lot. Uh, top 20 easily. Top 20 finish, no doubt about it. Uh, he did good work last year. He beef, he he started hitting his serve bigger. One of my main issues with Corda before last year was he was uh, an offensive player with good height who just didn't get a lot of speed on his serve. So that was an issue for for me. My comparison between Corda and Draper. Here's why I I like Draper a little bit better. Jack serves bigger. He is more consistent from the baseline. He's truly one of those guys that doesn't miss a lot of easy balls. He's going to keep those unforced error counts really, really low. And he moves better and he defends better than Corda. Corda is uh, much more reliant on dictating and, and being aggressive. The forehand is a little erratic. And I don't know why. Sometimes I'm perplexed by it because technically it looks pretty good. And it'll go through patches where it looks like a great weapon, phenomenal weapon. But Corda gives up uh, too many too many easy mistakes with his forehand. And he doesn't defend all that well. And his serve, while it's better, I don't know that it's I don't know that it's uh, as big a weapon as as I would like it to be at this point in time. Where Corda has an advantage over Draper, he hits bigger. No doubt about it. He hits bigger from the baseline, easier access to power. Uh, so I see Corda as, you know, a power baseliner. I guess I see Draper as a guy uh, who can be a little bit more. Someone who can be uh, tougher because he misses less, 
He defends better. He still has the access to offense enough where I don't think he's like limited offensively, especially because he moves forward, volleys really well, and he's got the big serve. So yeah, that's that's why Draper I mentioned and Corda, uh, I didn't. I like both of them a lot. I think Corda has got, got great potential. I just like Draper a hair more. Hi, Gil. What's your take on allowing spectators to move and make noise during points? Maybe if the noise is constant and not a shout in the middle of silence, players might be able to get used to it and it would be okay. But most of the shots in tennis require such focus at a high level that this might prove too disruptive, especially for players that are more sensitive to it, like Djokovic or Medvedev, who sometimes refuse to serve until the crowd is fully silent. Allowing the fans... To make as much noise as they want, it's fine. It's not going to distract the players. It's not going to disrupt them. They're not going to play worse tennis. This has been tested enough, uh, whether it be on the practice courts where the players play practice sets and they're just fine. Somehow they don't get distracted. Uh, UTS, the Patrick Muradoglu startup tour, fans are allowed to speak during the point. The play is fine. Nobody's getting distracted by the fans in the middle of the point. College tennis, I think they play okay. I think it's okay. So there's like this idea that, oh, it doesn't work in tennis. You can't do it in tennis. That I totally reject. But, and here's the curveball. Here's where I go the opposite direction that you think I'm going on this. I I like the silence. I like the silence during the point. I think it's good. And it, it has nothing to do with the players. The players will be fine. They can play tennis, again, as long as, as you said, as long as they're not expecting silence and then someone shouts out and then that's that's disruptive and distracting. But if there's a constant noise, the players are fine. I was at a hockey game. It was the Florida Panthers game just a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting my parents in Florida. And there was a fan behind me and this, is, this happens maybe one every 10 sporting events I go to. Guy ruined my experience. I regret now, now, after, now that I've sat through three periods of it, um, I regret that I didn't try to uh, get the usher to move me. The problem was this guy wasn't breaking any rules, right? You go into an arena or a stadium and you actually you don't have freedom of speech. You are act, and there's fine print on your ticket that you are going to, uh, you are going to adhere to a code of conduct, right? That you are not going to be disruptive to the fans around you. You are not going to curse. You are not going to be insulting. You are going to respect everybody, right? Like there are certain rules, and this guy was just on the edge. He wasn't really breaking any rules, but he had clearly never watched a hockey game in his damn life, and decided that everybody around him should hear his stream of consciousness at all times. He was spouting nonsense nonstop at a loud volume the entire game. And I wanted to strangle the guy. It was horrible. Like, he knew nothing about hockey. Nothing. And still thought that everybody was interested in in his reaction Everything that happened in the game. It was like the first hockey game he'd ever gone to. The guy was annoying beyond words. Um, And, you know, I also thought about, like, being like, hey, man, 
you want to be a little less annoying. Um, I wanted to really bad. And, you know, we were in Florida. Everybody's a little bit less intense there. I think in New York, there's no way this guy would have gotten away with what he got away with. Like somebody would have been like, hey, man, quiet. That's what would have happened in New York. But it was Florida. I was with my girlfriend and my parents. So and, and he was with his his friends. So if there was any sort of confrontation, I would have been pretty exposed. I wouldn't have been in a good spot with my uh, with my parents and my girlfriend. Um, would have been would have been a one on three battle. So I was too afraid to say anything. Anyway, I think that the silence thing at tennis tournaments, like it just keeps everybody focused, keeps everybody locked in, and you kind of it, it's a nice match experience where you you go to a match and and you do watch the match and you don't have somebody behind you who is you know nonstop talking to the person next to them about uh, how they hate their ex and, oh my God, did you see what he posted on Instagram? He's such a jerk. Uh, I can't believe I spent six months with the asshole. Like, you don't have to listen to that as much when you go to tennis events. Um, and partially that's because you have this nice regulation that makes it so that people can't talk during the point. So I am all for that. I am all for that. And that is why I would like the silence during the points to remain. Next one from Jason, also a member. Uh, the race for the ATP was great this past year. I think all players deserved their spot and played pretty well. Uh, they were in form, barring some injuries. However, I think the race should put higher weight the back end of the season and or weight heavier the tournaments with similar conditions to the finals so that the finals have the best level of tennis. It also helps balance your seating at tournaments because the early tournaments are based on prior year performance. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, don't don't you want the year-end championships to just be a reflection of the eight players who who had the best body of work when you just take the season as a whole? I don't think the spirit of the finals is to, you know, find the the eight players who are going to make the best competition, right? Um, whether that be by finding the players who are in the best form or finding the players who are whose games best suit the conditions, because at the end of the day, it would be arrogant to assume that you know what's going to happen. It would be arrogant to assume that you know that the conditions don't suit Casper Ruud in 2022, and therefore he's not going to get out of the group. Well, guess what? He did get out of the group, right? Or in the case of, I don't know, I can't think of another parallel example for the finals, right? But heading into Basel this year, you might think, well, Felix, Felix doesn't have a chance. Felix wins the tournament because he turned it around. It wasn't in good form, but he turned it around. So you have to give the eight players who had the best body of work throughout the 10, 11 months that lead up to the finals, you have to give them a chance to play and see what happens. It's arrogant to try to create a system where you know you think you're creating the best finals. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, I think it's perfect as is. All right, this one is from Geba Manini. Geba Manini? Okay. Hey, Gil. 
I have a couple of questions for you about backhands. You mentioned in an earlier episode that a hybrid backhand would be impossible to create. And while I do agree with you, I also don't think that it is out of the realm for a one-hander with a two-handed return to emerge as a player. While both strokes are basically equal from the ground in terms of advantages and drawbacks, the two-hander dominates in the serve return dynamic. And if youngsters such as Teo Davidov, Davidov can create ambidextrous forehand games, I don't think that it's a stretch for something like this to emerge. I still think it would be so hard to do this, uh, to create a world-class. And when I say world-class, I don't mean like best on tour. I just mean professional level, two-handed return, to go along with a professional level one-handed backhand. There are so many different mechanics and different sensations. And then, you, you know, you think about the repetitions that you're losing. Like essentially there's a relationship between your backhand return and your backhand ground stroke. It's a strong relationship. And it's one thing figuring out how to abbreviate your take back on what would be your regular backhand ground stroke and making that your return. It's a whole nother thing having to deal with a, a completely different technique where you're relying on solely your right hand for one backhand and then very much your left hand for the other backhand. And to get both of those things good is so hard. Um, and there's also the mental aspect, which I I bring up right now because it's kind of topical because I, I recently got some, uh, some really good advice from Paul Anacone's brother, Steve Anacone, who I've been working with in, uh, in Tucson. Um, I was hitting my backhand slice a lot. And I was having a lot of trouble on my two-hander in terms of confidence. It was erratic, and I just wasn't controlling it, and I was not confident. And uh, Steve was like, your slice is basically making your two-hander worse because you're relying on it so heavily. And your your two-hander, you're not going to get out of this rut. You're not going to make it better until you, you start hitting your two-hander. Uh, not occasionally. Like, you have to make your... You have to... Force yourself to hit it. Uh, this was great advice. He was so right. I had to stop slicing in order for my two-hander to get better. I just had to mentally get in that spot where I was decisive and confident about my decision to hit a two-hander. And that in itself made it a lot better. Not to mention the fact that I could get a better feeling for it because I was hitting it more. So I think that same thing would also kind of play in. The more... The more you're having to deal with, the harder. The more different techniques you're trying to juggle at the same time, the harder it is for you to just execute. And that's what I had with my slice and my two-hander where one of them went off the rails. And it was a lot easier to get that one under control when I isolated it, focused on it, and threw the other technique away for a little bit. Even if it was good. My slice is good. Okay, the next part of this is... Uh, I am also curious about whether this comparison is fair to make. I often uh, hear talk about how Novak's forehand is so underrated and how when discussing the best forehands, we shouldn't just mention Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, and Berrettini, but also Djokovic. Is the same true for Carlos's backhand? He can pretty much do everything off of that wing, but he isn't lumped into the S-tier backhand group that Medvedev, Zverev, Djokovic, and Sinner are to, uh, Sinner to an extent are in. Interesting point. I would say Alcaraz's backhand is not 
the shield. It's not the force field and the shock absorber that Djokovic, Medvedev, and Zverev's backhands and, and Sinner's backhands. Again, you said to a lesser extent, and I do think for Sinner it is a lesser extent. For Sinner it is a little bit more about just the power that he generates so easily off of his two-hander. But for Medvedev and Zverev and Djokovic, there's a reliability and a defensive prowess that Alcaraz does not possess on the backhand. But it is very interesting that you bring this up uh, because recently Tennis Insights released the uh, year-long shot qualities for uh, 2023. And the results were that Djokovic had the highest forehand, by a lot, by the way, 9.1 shot quality, where the next, the next four were all between 8.6 and 8.7. But the ranking was Djokovic, Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, Sinner, Dimitrov. That was the top five. Medvedev was sixth, by the way, which is notable. Uh, the top ten back, backhands were Djokovic, Sinner, Medvedev, Zverev, Alcaraz, number five. So how about that? It's the four guys you mentioned and then Alcaraz. So, yeah, uh, you're right. It's a really good backhand. It maybe is a little bit underrated. But it's also probably not quite there with the other guys. It's just in maybe a tier below. Okay, next one is from Jonathan Basmanti. Hey, Cam, can you name the two other players in both WTA and ATP that you think can bring surprises to the 2024 season? Cam? Cam? Did you say Cam? Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.